Welcome to the Sweet 16, the 16th episode of the Legends podcast. We are officially balling like it's March Madness, like our idol future once said. I am one half of the Legends podcast. My name is Sam Manheimer, and I am joined by newly famous Jim Cramer call-in specialist, Ari Levy. We got a great show for you guys today with Daniel Weiss. Just an all-around interesting lad, good friend of ours from college. He helped kind of break down the trading card market, non-functional tokens, NFT, fungible, working at Turner Sports. But what I kind of wanted to get into is when you guys listen to the interview, you'll see like we start talking about Twitter and I mentioned, I was like, yeah, like I just got into Twitter like a couple of months ago. Like I was, I was never on it. And Sam and Daniel talk about how great it is and what they love about it. And then the very next day, I had called into to Jim Cramer's show, Mad Money, and I suggested that him and Dave Portnoy should run for president, and I put it on Twitter. And I'm not kidding. Two minutes after I put it on Twitter, Dave Portnoy retweeted it, and it's at 200,000 views now. Pretty incredible that our future ex-boss, Dave Portnoy, picked it up that quickly. Pretty funny. It was it was cool. Phone blow up a little bit. It, it was just funny because, like, I like went in with the intent. I was like, I think I could make it go viral because like it's a funny question. And and Kramer reacted pretty positively to it and he liked it. And then I put it on Twitter and I just did not expect that Portnoy was going to put it out two minutes after I put it out. It was cool. And that was my first viral moment on Twitter. So you've called into Jim Kramer a couple times now, right? You're Ari from That's, Illinois. Yeah. Well, he, he says Ari. Airy. The Airy from Illinois. I was like, I th- he's a Jew too. I thought he would like know that name, but I, I guess not. But it's my second time calling in. So you give him some specific stock picks. Would you ever ask him to give his take about Bofa? What's Bofa? Bofa these nuts. Oh, like, would you, no. ever, would you ever screw with him? So the way it works is the, the show is not recorded live. It's recorded an hour before it actually airs. And like right after you ask the question, they cut you off. And it's like, I didn't even know what he said. And then you have to wait and we have to watch the show and see what he says. But because it's not live, like if you call it and like say like, go fuck yourself or something inappropriate, like they're going to like probably cut and then start over and then cut that out. So it's like not like worth it. Like that's why like you got to like say something funny that will make it on air. Like, oh, like Kramer Portnoy 2024. Got it. Uh, I didn't realize it was curated, but that makes sense. Yeah. I was expecting you just were like on your phone watching yourself call in. I mean, I feel no, 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 no. It was it was recorded. So I talked to them at three and they're like, we'll call you in about an hour. And it took them an hour and 40 to call me. So I thought I was getting ghosted. And then they called me and it must have they must have recorded the first part of the show last because I was at the beginning of the show. but. My call didn't happen until like 4.40, and then the show went on at 5. Got it. Next time you call in, you should uh, ask Jim to come on the pod. Maybe that'll make it on air. Get us some uh, Yeah, I, I definitely I definitely could do that. I try to get Portnoy to come on. I mean, in reality, Portnoy probably has thousands of people asking him to do things for him every day, whether it's an investment strategy or to come on their podcast. So... It would be really cool to get Portnoy on the pod, though. I mean, that would just be like a total game changer. Kramer, too, but those guys are definitely pretty busy, but we just got to keep putting in the work. 
So speaking of millennial male icons, our guy, Six God, Champagne Poppy, Fred Van Vliet's brother, Drake, released a couple new songs on Thursday evening. And he has the culture in an Amanda Nunez chokehold. The man just does not miss. Yeah, I, I watched that fight last night. Amanda Nunez is just fucking incredible. But aside from that, yeah, Drake, uh, he's got more slaps than the Beatles. Like it's it's start. You got to start talking that he's he's one of the best uh, musicians ever. Yeah, and he's been doing it for so long too. I remember I was at a bar bat mitzvah in like 2009, and I watched two people grind for the first time to a Drake song. That's an indelible moment in my mental history. But it's kind of nuts. Like we were 14 years old listening to him and now we're 26 and that has not changed. He just continues to put out great music and has an effect on pop culture. And it's just funny to look back that he was like acting on Degrassi. Yeah. He is the goat, I think, of Instagram captions. And I went back through my Instagram history prior to recording this, and I actually have only three Drake-related Instagram captions, but I feel like that's kind of like at the top of the bell curve, more or less. Pretty standard. But I mean, Drake is, he, he has an ability to shift the millennial male online zeitgeist with one bar, unlike anybody else. Yeah, he does. And he has so many just memorable one-liners and songs and beats. He's never been a musician like him, in my opinion. Imagine if I never met the Broskis. Yeah. Most Instagrammable caption ever. In your opinion, or is that like a fact? I don't know that it's been empirically proven, but okay. I think I, I have a strong hypothesis about that. Okay. Not bad. <laughs> Do we want to talk All-Star Weekend at all? My, my girl said that she got tickets to the Rising Stars game, so hopefully she'll have a really great time there. Yeah, well, um, the Rising Stars game didn't even happen. Really? Yeah, you didn't see that? But my girl said that she has tickets to the Rising Stars game. <laughs> yeah, I I actually was fortunate enough to go to the Rising Stars game last year. Really a great experience. This year they just made the rosters, but because of COVID they're not playing. But I am excited to watch Zach Levine in the All-Star game tonight. This is We're recording this on a Sunday, by the way. Yeah, I'm excited to see Steph and LeBron play together. That's a uh, unprecedented tandem. Yeah, they've always real. gone up against each other, even in every All Star yeah. game they've ever played in yeah. together. I, team, team LeBron is is stacked. Yeah, and Embiid is now out too, and he was a starter for Team KD, so now Zion's starting there. So team, saw, team LeBron by a mile. I saw Ben Steiner tweeting the most. Well, I don't. We don't know exactly where he is now, but the most convenient replacement would be Trey Young because he's in Atlanta, probably. Yeah. I mean, he could have left and gone somewhere else, but he does play in Atlanta. And I, I think it's it's just hard in the East or it's just hard in the NBA in general because there's just so many good. There's so much good talent. Like There's so many different guys that could have made the all star team. But uh, I, I think Trey was definitely a big snub. Yeah. Poor ice Trey. He but was an also last year, though. He was an all star starter last year. But that also that I think. Part of the reason he got snubbed was because there were such high expectations for Atlanta, and they've like really underdelivered thus far. Well, at least Atlanta has the All Star Game, and they're awkwardly wearing the Pacers All Star Game inspired jerseys because it was supposed to be in Indianapolis, so it just looks kind of random. But yeah, yeah, it should still be a fun time. Well, anyway, so we talked about Atlanta a little bit, so I think that's a good pivot to get into our Atlanta-based guest, Daniel Weiss. Like Ari said. Really awesome interview, talked through NFTs, 
sports cards, life working at Turner. Daniel's an awesome guest. So I think without further ado, we can jump into that. We now welcome on a very dear friend of mine. We met in college in Pi, Indiana, but we forged our relationship through Twitter DMs. The one, the only, Mr. Daniel Weiss. Daniel Weiss, welcome to the Legends Podcast. Thank you for having me on. I would definitely, Manheimer, consider you an internet friend first and foremost. And internet friends are, you know, the most near and dear to your heart, especially in the times we live in. So uh, thank you for having me on. What do you consider me? Uh, I consider you a, it's a great question, Ari. What do I consider you? Moving on. (laughs) Well, I would actually argue, Daniel, there are friends who you become acquainted with via circumstance, a la fraternities. You have some control over it. But Twitter friends are people that you really gravitate towards because you have similar interests. And that was, that would be kind of where I put you in that category. It's like any tweet that I find funny, I know I can shoot to you and you will also find it funny. That's a that's a special level of bonding right there. I think we're both proponents, too, of the idea that how the hell is this app free? I'd pay Jack easily 20 bucks a month for access to his platform. It, the content is just so spectacular. And the fact that it's free makes it even that much more funny when the memes are just absolutely flying. Yeah. I mean, a gym membership runs you maybe like, what, $100 and it gives you some satisfaction and happiness. I would argue Twitter brings me exponentially more joy on a daily basis. Ergo, I would pay over $100 a month for Twitter. I like Twitter a lot, but I wouldn't pay jack shit. Fuck that guy. Nice double entendre, Ari. I don't even know if that was intentional. I'm very creative. When the wine is flowing, like anything is possible. Sheesh. It's funny about Twitter, though, because... I like, you know, I had my Instagram, but like I kind of just stayed off the Twitter game for years and I just recently got on it and it's just so funny. Especially when they're like pretty serious things like in the world, let's say like the insurrection of the Capitol, for instance, like people couldn't hold off making jokes on Twitter for 24 hours. Like like, the jokes were just flying. Yeah. And like, I don't use Twitter to follow like MSNBC or Fox News or whatever you subscribe to. Like I just follow it to like, follow like sports and like comedians and that's like pretty much it like it's just funny so i think that the corner of twitter that i've gotten the most value out of are the random people that are literally only famous on twitter like sports teams twitter is very important to me i'm a big raider nation twitter guy and there's probably like 10 to 20 personalities who just tweet nonstop about the raiders same thing with the warriors these are people with a couple thousand followers but just tweet 24 7 about stuff that i'm interested in yeah it's like you know them basically one that nyman just turned me on to and for those you know politics aside and even though some of it was dangerous like i think a lot of us found donald trump's twitter to be amusing at times and there's this Twitter account that Nyman showed me called Dolan Trump. And it's like James Dolan's photo on Trump's face, like face with like the hair and everything. And he just like tweets everything, like how Trump would tweet it in regards to the Knicks. And it's pretty funny. Yeah. Those are the best types of yeah. Twitter accounts. Also, no context, succession, college yes. football, any no context Twitter account is phenomenal. Just post screen grabs of shows that are great or or in college football's case college football there's there's a lot of different segments of twitter but we could we could spend hours on this and we may come back to this in a little while 
unfortunately for all of us, none of us are professionals on Twitter. It would be nice if we were, but unfortunately we're not. Daniel, you make your money in other ways through items such as non-fungible tokens <laughs> and pieces of cardboard with pictures of guys who play sports on them, uh, sports gambling, and then also you work for a sports broadcasting company. Quite the plethora of sports-related movements professionally. Could you talk to a little bit about what you do and, and describe for the listeners who Daniel Weiss is? Yeah, I can. I'll first speak to my real professional job. So I work for Turner Sports, which is a subsidiary of Warner Media. So that includes everything like NBA on TNT. We have the All-Star Game coming up this weekend, March Madness, MLB on TBS. Basically anything that also will ultimately fall into like HBO Sports will play a part in as well. Frankly, even like Space Jam that's going to be coming out this summer on HBO Max and in theaters, knock on wood. So we, we play a huge role in like all these different elements of sports, but I work more on the, the business strategy side, a little bit of the acquisitions, like in terms of other sports that we could acquire down the road, say like the big one right now for, for every media company is like the NFL contracts available, not saying that we're looking at it, but like that's the type of thing that we look to evaluate if it makes sense to add to our portfolio. So I mean, like competing with ESPN, Fox Sports, et cetera. I mean, like you said, you're like not looking at it, but like that's like the biggest TV contract you could get and you're talking about it. So like you guys are like looking at it. I you can't speak to it, but like I mean, I can't like, speak to it. I'll say that. But I'm like I, I will yeah. say that I think you are. I, I, I at least enjoy the product. Though. Like you would be an, like I just think like any sports media outlet would just be foolish not to try and get it. If Daniel were to tell you Shaq would kick down your door and kill you. That's yeah, how I don't know. I don't know about that. No, at, a, at a minimum, Ernie would. Ernie Johnson would kick down your door. Dude, that's the coolest man at Turner Sports, uh, Ernie Johnson. You see him walking through the halls. When I was an intern, it was like the first year, or I guess a trainee. So, you, of course, you work the holidays. Like we had the NBA on TNT over Christmas. And so I was working the holidays and was waiting in line. Uh, we had a really cool market cafeteria back when we could go into the office. And I see Ernie running around the corner, like grabbing a quick, a quick salad at the buffet line. And there was like a group of like 12 of us waiting in line. And he looked like he was about to sprint back downstairs to the studios. Instead, he paused for a second and goes, all right, I'm going to cover all these guys' lunches. And so he stayed, like introduced himself to every one of us individually, then bought all of our lunches. And just like that's the type of guy that Ernie is. So uh, it's cool to call someone like that in a, cha- a shack and a Barkley. Kenny Smith, Dwayne Wade, guys like that, co-workers as well. That's awesome. Best halftime show in sports, hands down. For sure. I think that his, in, we're actually going to be hosting, starting this All-Star weekend, uh, there's going to be a really cool documentary series about the inside guys. It's going to be a four-part documentary series, basically talking about the last 30 years of uh, a show, because it's really pretty unprecedented for a show to be on the air like that for 30 years and to be as relevant 30 years in as they were from the from the get-go like that's it's pretty impressive in the way that they've kind of like reinvented themselves i think that they kill social media too um i think that they have some of the, the best viral clips throughout the course of a year and don't sleep on the tuesday guys too adam lefko candace parker Dwayne wade shack shack kind of plays a little bit of a different role in that show he's a little more of the forefront which we can all jokingly say that's what shack ultimately wants to be is the forefront that's that's a great show too. Lefko has a really good future as like I could see the next Ernie Johnson. 
It's such a it's such a great show, and like Shaq and Charles are both Hall of Famers. Shaq is arguably one of the greatest players ever. I mean, Barkley's up there, but Shaq, you could make the argument that he's like a top ten, top fifteen NBA player ever. And it's just like people gravitate towards that, and it's just they mesh so well. And I was able to actually go to your guys' event. You had a free event last All Star break in Chicago at House of Blues, and it was a live broadcast and. It was so cool to be there and just like got I got to see a little of them off camera. And yeah, they were in front of an audience, but it was just so cool to see how like relaxed and friendly they are. And it's honestly just like best friends talking basketball. It's like one of the best basketball shows out there. Yeah. One of the ways to describe it, what fortunate thing when you work when we were in the office is uh, the studios were directly below where we work. And so if you stayed late after work, like. It, and on a Tuesday or a Thursday, it, it was a no brainer to stick around and just like watch live the inside show. And two key takeaways from it. The first being that the genuine laughter that you hear, like the background laughter, that's legitimately the same cameramen who have been there for 25 years that are just dying laughing at the jokes that these guys are doing. Like I think Jimmy Kimmel says that's not just the best sports show on TV. It's the best comedy show on TV, too. So there's that. And then, as you were saying, like come commercial break like it the show doesn't stop they might as well just keep pressing recording it for as soon as they do uh, yeah. because those guys are just still going yeah best moments on tv are when Shaq and charles race each other push each other over like it's such physical comedy but it works so well with those dudes a just because they're so big and it's just funny seeing two dudes that are that big go at each other but they're also just such endearing and, and charismatic people it's it's like you said a very funny show Um, Yeah, more than more than just a basketball uh, type of thing. When I went to the show, you know, as you guys know, Shaq's a DJ and like he loves like that heavy dubstep type shit. And they were they were playing that. And like he got up with Charles Barkley and was just like grabbing him and jumping him up and jumping up and down while they were playing like dubstep. And he was like going like, you know, he's like throwing his arms up to the crowd. And it was it, it was just hype. Like and just like working there must be amazing. I have a question for you guys. Yeah. Do you could you. Who do you see being in basketball or other sports? Who could you see being the next star like a Shaq? Draymond Green, without question. He's already teed up for it because you, you've seen him come in on that halftime show when the Warriors aren't in it, like last year. So I, I think he's already kind of in the works to come in and be one of the guys on the halftime show. In terms of somebody who knows the sport backwards and forwards Draymond's probably one of the most intelligent basketball players there is so from a game perspective he can break it down but also he just lets it fly he doesn't have any sort of filter which I think a a company like Turner can kind of lean into a little bit more you you see these ESPN personalities or lack thereof honestly over the years kind of drift away from the company I think because it's kind of gotten a little Disneyified. but TNT Turner really I think takes the other side of the coin and, and Draymond's a perfect fit for that. I have a thousand percent agree. I think that the thing with Draymond too, when he, ultimately when he retires, he would have played through generations of players. So he would have played with the, all the new guys, plus like that's extending back to Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady. And that perspective in terms of him seeing the beginning, the middle and the end of the, the biggest basketball evolution that arguably the sport may ever see. I think that that will prevent the future iterations of broadcasting from being too like, quote, back in my day, like how the 90s was better. The guys before saying how the 80s were better, 
I could see Draymond being like a perfect blend of the two while like speaking his mind in really cohesive ways. For when you first asked that question, I thought you were thinking about like Shaq as a player. And I was like, oh, like for a second, like I'm thinking like, who's that dominant of a player right now that could be that in the future? But no, like, I mean, it seems like right now Draymond Green is being teed up to do that. And he's also like, he's definitely got a personality and like, keep in mind, Charles and Shaq were both very fiery on the basketball court. Like they got in fights, they they pushed and shoved, and, and Draymond's also like that. But he's he's intelligent, and he gets the game, and he's personable, and he sounds good on camera. And that could definitely be a guy that they could bring in with that. And he, he he's played at a very high level his entire career. Oh, I got to ask the question, though. Would it be funny if Draymond tripped on a power cord and fell over? Probably yes. I think yes. I think it still would be. I there's something about Shaq though being seven three and they're causing a mini earthquake in the studios when he falls that like <laughs> you legitimately feel things shaking. But yeah, no, I think Draymond like totally has a future. And Dwayne Wade does too. Like Wade mm-hmm. for for a guy that I thought was a little quieter when he played, he was an electric basketball player clearly and had incredible signature style, but was a little quieter at least nationally. Maybe not as much in Miami. I, he's he's completely thrown himself into the role and like not just the linear TV element, but also like the Bleacher Report piece. So we also uh, own and operate Bleacher Report. It's it's probably forward thinking, one of our biggest investments. And he has absolutely taken on like social media, developing a voice there and like within the Bleacher Report app. So I'm super excited about Dwayne Wade as well. Another guy I could actually see doing that, though, and. He has a lot of interests, but he's well-spoken and he's smart as Jimmy Butler. I agree. But I don't know like what he's going to do, but like he has a lot of interests. He's like in on the Hollywood scene. Him and Mark Wahlberg are like very good friends. He's living that Miami life right now, but like I feel like he's like trying to follow that Dwayne Wade footstep. Anecdote about Jimmy Butler. He said that Mark Wahlberg's like 10-year-old daughter was his best friend. That's all. It's cool, too, how I think that this generation of NBA players has felt empowered to share their interests off the court and what makes them unique, different. So whether that be Jimmy Butler's love of Taylor Swift, not something you would necessarily expect from him, or Carmelo Anthony not just being a wine lover, but like a real wine connoisseur and like taking classes on wine, like really, really trying I mean, he almost seems like a sommelier in terms of the way that he's able to describe some of these wines. Like, I think that this current generation of NBA players, and it, it probably started with the 04 class, like, but they really do seem empowered to have like individual voices beyond just the scope of basketball. And I, that's why basketball is a sport unlike any other, where it really is going to continue becoming a global sport. But I mean, it ultimately could, soccer has 4 billion fans worldwide. It's going to be close uh, in the next 20 years. It'll be interesting to see how much the NBA basketball closes the gap on that. Yeah, and the other thing about basketball is, like, it's just very accessible because all you need is a ball and a court, and it, like, doesn't take much to, like, build a court somewhere. So you see it kind of going on in Africa now where there's, like, more players by coming way of Africa or Europe from even, you know, Europe, Africa, or from Africa to Europe, like, it's just like they're spreading the game worldwide. And that was really David Stern's vision. But um, you see guys that wouldn't typically be playing basketball, playing basketball now, and they're really excelling. 
Daniel, to your point, I do think that basketball is leveraging social media and other kind of ways of getting athletes' interests out to the world in a way that other sports aren't really doing. At least the other comparison in the States are probably baseball and football. But with basketball, you have articles coming out. One of my favorite articles I've ever read, actually, the NBA's Secret Wine Society, which actually goes into a lot of depth about Carmelo Anthony and the fact that basically the banana boat, so him, LeBron, back in the day, D. Wade, they all had a and huge Chris Paul. love for wine. Chris Paul, too. Huge love for wine. And they would be bringing these bottles to each other's houses that are worth $20,000. And they would try to one-up each other. You see that. You see the whole rise of league fits. Guys are getting more fashion forward. Video gaming is another thing that you saw, at least during quarantine, with even the younger guys like Devin Booker, these guys would be going on ESPN and playing 2K against each other. There's just all these other sort of avenues that athletes have now to interact with fans. And I think it just allows people to resonate with them even more and build their brands, but then also just build the sport. And inherently, that's also good for Turner and everybody. I have a question for you guys that's related to that. Do you guys feel that, I, let's, let's say when things really open back up, do you think that you will watch as much regular season NBA basketball as you did say three years ago live. So pandemic aside, I would still watch the horse competition. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't watch that, but as far as NBA basketball goes, yeah, I do. I do think I'll continue watching, but it is hard to imagine that I'll have as much time to be able to do it nowadays. If I'm just hanging out by myself and there's a game on, I'm going to turn it on. Like I, I try to watch pretty much every warriors game. And then if there's a marquee game on, I'll, I'll try to check that out. The thing with post-quarantine that's hard is those Saturday night primetime games, mm-hmm. which, I mean, networks put a lot of energy into. I, I find those difficult to capture when I'm out. Like if, if a Warriors game's on and I'm at a bar, I'll watch it out of the corner of my eye. But really, you're focused on socializing. So it'll be interesting to see how the NBA tries to carve out kind of that market or if they'll be able to. But I mean... The weekdays, I think I'll still continue to watch basketball at the clip that I'm watching it currently. Yeah. Are you about yeah. You? Yeah. I mean, I watch basketball all the time. I've watched probably eight, I, I really want to say like 80% or more of the Bulls games this year, or at least a half of it when I've had time. I am very involved in fantasy basketball. I love doing DraftKings daily fantasy basketball. I'm very engaged. We also, uh, my roommate is, uh, he works for Esponda Associates, so we have the uh, API login for League Pass. So I'm always mm-hmm. flipping around. It's something I've always loved, pandemic, no pandemic. So I will always be watching basketball. But, yeah, like I'm not going to like – if there's a good social event going on or I have something going on, like I'm not going to miss it to watch basketball. But if I don't really don't want to go or whatever, I'll stay in and watch. So, Daniel, I'm going to flip this question on you now because I know you've got the – analytics behind yeah. it. So you asked us if we're going to continue watching basketball. We both said yes. The numbers say differently right now. I, and a lot of NBA Twitter loves to get in a cluster about this. NBA viewership is broadly down. Correct. And it was during the bubble. And there was nothing else really going against it. What is the sentiment within the industry about what's causing that? And then do people think that that's related to people not being able to go to games or I guess like what's, what do we think is going on there? Yeah. A couple of things in terms of the background for this, uh, this is pretty much like day to day. One of the things that I work on, like 
work on like building the schedule for the second half of the NBA season, work on the the schedule like during the bubble. We're considering like always flipping and changing games. And like we always analyze viewership across the board global nationally uh, when we're thinking about this. It's very interesting because it's almost like a, a paradox of there are two different there are two different sides to viewership. There's the side that's interacting with the NBA on social diversified sources of, re- of revenue like NBA Top Shot. You can I would blend sneakers into that because it, it blends in with the culture in sports cards, which we'll talk about later. I, but I, there's also that piece of watching live, traditional, linear television basketball. And what I feel is the main cause for the viewership decrease has nothing to necessarily do with the product on the court or anything along those lines. It's the platform at which it's on. So in the same way that you can have a social media platform, say a Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, traditional cable TV in itself is a platform. It's just a platform that's been around since the 1950s. And that platform viewership is decreasing and it's, it's decreasing more so with, let's say people two to 49 and mainly 18 to 49. That's where you're seeing a, a drastic decrease. And I'd say that people two to 17, let's say kids to tweens to early teens, they are shifting completely to online and trying, they're able to engage in more of an interactive way that's less of laid back viewing, more I'd say active viewing. But regardless, when when you see things about like say NBA viewership being down 12% during the bubble, the couple of things, the first being that games were starting at six o'clock or five o'clock and during the regular season, three o'clock, those are not ideal times, regardless of a pandemic for NBA basketball to be going on. But we we just had to get the games in. But if you were a diehard NBA fan, like there was nothing better because you just had a long stretch of basketball. Also, with the games being in Orlando, we couldn't stretch basketball games, I believe, past 11 o'clock. So no game started past, I believe, eight o'clock Eastern time. And that impacts your West Coast ratings when the Lakers are your number one team. The Clippers were also anticipated to be a top team in the West. And those games were starting at 5 p.m. locally uh, in those in those markets. I remember we had a big debate. We were looking at game seven of the Celtics and the Raptors versus game one. So that was the Eastern Conference semifinals versus game one of the Lakers Nuggets Western Conference Finals. Traditionally, the more important game would go second, which would be the game seven, for mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. It's an elimination game. But in the, for the purposes of this, did it make sense for the Lakers, Los Angeles, or Denver in their Western Conference Finals game? For Denver, that's the biggest game since Mello was there and Allen Iverson was there. Does it make sense for that game to be a five five or six o'clock local start or if we even move it up like a four o'clock start like those were some of the questions that we were getting into in the bubble that were like time period specific they're they're kind of they can kind of get pretty granular pretty quickly but like that stuff really impacts like direct playoff ratings how late we're able to broadcast things the other thing that i think is changing about the nba is just the way people consume it i think you were getting at that earlier where 
people are going to be watching highlights on their phones and that's not going to count as a view. And when I illegally stream out of market warriors games, that doesn't count as a view. There's a pretty good chunk of NBA fandom. I would say that actually doesn't watch the games again, NBA Twitter loves to harp on those types of people and call them casuals, but that really is a big part of the market, especially yeah. younger people. And I don't think that that group should, should necessarily be like called out. It, the people that are calling them out are like the diehards of diehards, which I totally understand, but at the same time, like it's pretty cool that like NBA fandom is evolving where I can have a 13 year old cousin who can talk about the NBA from beginning to end and like talk about that Zion highlight that he saw last night. And he, I know for a fact, he didn't see it live. He saw it either via Bleacher Report or House of Highlights. And it's still cool that like these apps are, de are developing these fan bases at a really young age. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be short-sighted of us to look to overly look at the viewership decreases on traditional TV and not take into account like the greater ramifications of the fandom that the NBA has and the avidity of which of fa the fandom that the NBA has with that younger generation. That, that's what leads into like new ways, new sources of revenue and mm. new uh, opportunities beyond just traditional NBA games. Something that I wanted to ask, which you kind of touched on earlier, and I want to see like what Turner Sports is like involvement in is it, but like it's e-gaming and it's it's ever growing. And like especially team games, whether it's uh, Fortnite, Call of Duty or, or playing, you know, NBA 2K. But a lot of these guys and you see it across all sports, but NBA in particular, like, they you know, they really like playing Call of Duty with each other and they stream it. So how big do you see that going forward and what is Turner Sports doing to like prop it up if they are yeah so we have this we have this franchise called e-league and what e-league is is it's actually a esports broadcast where the say it's csgo or it can it was it's been super smash before um we'll go through these different esports titles or video game titles that we're turning into esports and we'll have tournaments during the week on twitch and either the best of or a live for like a final or something like that, a live viewing will be uh, on TBS on Friday nights. And so that for us has been a, a huge, uh, huge investment in the company. I believe we were the first company to put esports on cable television. And I, we also have the most watch esports events. It was like the CFC, the CSGO, which is short for uh, Counter-Strike Go, uh, the CSGO major was like the most watched cable esports event in U.S. history. But nonetheless, I think that there's it's you could argue that there are questions about whether cable, traditional cable is the right platform for something like that. But regardless, it's a really good marketing play for these different uh, games and the different teams that represent these games to help build their brands as well. So I, I think that long term there's a ton of growth there but i i if i was to like pick a lane at which where you would see the growth it would be with the actual video game developers so when you mention fortnite like epic games and their ability to create not just fortnite but they also create it's called the unreal engine and that engine is builds 80 percent of the video games that you play that creates a real impact in the industry and that allows them since they're the ones who are creating the engine 
to ultimately be the ones who create the leagues long term because the the gamers like they only have a lifespan usually from 16 to 22 it's pretty short just because of the the reflexes are so critical for something like that <laughs> it, 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 you're, you're laughing, you've lost it by the time you're 22 you're laughing, so, but my FIFA skills have completely been lost. Uh, what happened in college will never be replicated. But yeah, but yeah. I, I just thought that, that's just like so interesting to me because if you were like a professional, like I feel like you would like keep honing in on like that because like professional athletes, like yeah, like reflex and ability matters going forward. And like granted, I know it's different, but like I'd feel like if you were like really good at video games, like I like I feel like you just won't go downhill because of like your age around 22 like maybe when you got like older but i feel like like is that i just like feel like that's such a weird window it i i agree it is and for some reason we've just seen that we actually when we when i first started we were hosting like it was almost it was a combination of a real world and like an esports tournament where they were they're basically like living at the local marriott uh, around the corner from the Turner Sports office, but they were coming in and like they were playing competitive. Like we had a stadium built for them, and like they were all guys who were like in great shape. But you would notice that there was no one there older than their early twenties. Were there any girls? I do not recall one girl, to be honest. <laughs> okay, I was just curious. I recall smelling uh, some some chain smoking in the in the elevators, especially <laughs> from the Swedes, but uh, nothing in the way of uh, female gamers. But um, who knows? Maybe maybe there are maybe there are more now than there were then. A lot of uh, energy drinks, probably a lot of jewels. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it was very funny. Like, so this is actually kind of one of the good things about working at Turner is the different types of personalities that you would see. So like on our in our office building in on different floors, but uh, in one office building. You had the finance guys, you had Turner Sports. So like, a, I would argue bias, but Turner Sports, pretty fun group. You had the Cartoon Network folks. Who, then you also had the Adult Swim folks. And I, there wasn't a collection of a group that I loved more than the Adult Swim team because they were completely off the walls. There would be like, they'll have shows starring that their own employees on adultswim.com and like, 1230 on a Tuesday where they'll build like some sort of a boxing ring in their in their office and they'll just have guys going at it dresses like characters from uh, random video games from the from the 80s and 90s. It's really, really a funny crew. And then like hearing the conversations that like a Turner Sports employee would have with like a CNN employee with an Adult Swim employee all in the same elevator. It, It was truly like people from different worlds, which was kind of fun. It sounds like an awesome melting pot. So while we're talking about NBA, though, your boy Lloyd Pierce just got canned. And I want to just go on the record and say that me and Alec Nyman, who came on the show and did the NBA picks, we both picked him to be coach of the year. And uh, that pick is very shoo. Yeah. um, If I if I known you guys were going with that, I would have uh, tailed your pick. I think that that like the the thought process behind Lloyd Pierce is for rookie for coach of the year totally makes sense but this team it it's more from outsiders perspectives they're like the hawks are 14 to 20 like it's not that bad like this is basically what the hawks have always been 
but there was such an investment. I, I thought like an optimism for the team in the offseason with the acquisitions, especially it wasn't necessarily just like the Rondo acquisition, the Chris Dunn. But I think when we got uh, Bogdanovich, I think that there was like genuine excitement with the team because you look at this roster and you're like, yeah, it's got elements of a 2K roster where you're not sure if it all fits together. But this team is 12 deep and like in a season where you don't know who's healthy game to game, there'd be a ton of games in a short period of time. Like having a team where you had 12 guys, like this was the perfect year to have something like that. And then also I felt like there was potential for the Hawks to pair together some of the young players, pair that with something like a Tony Snell expiring contract. It's like 12 million bucks and really Tony go Snell's after garbage. Hey, that he's been hitting his open threes. Yeah. I, Quarter three. I, I would take Tony Snell. On yeah. That. Yeah. Tony, I would go to war with Tony Snell on an open, open corner three, just the corner open three, nothing else. But I would go to war with him on that. He one just shot. did nothing. He just did nothing on the bulls. He's gotten a little better since he's kind of like moved on, but he has that electric stat line that you see every now and then on Twitter. Zero, zero, like, zero, zero, yeah. zero. <laughs> Which I mean, that reminds me of my performance in the AU Pi basketball league. Like that, that's, a, that's quite the performance. <laughs> but no, I think that there, there was hope that the Hawks could like pair a bunch of guys together. Also, there was hope that Trey would improve defensively and in terms of like closing out games. And like they're so close, but at the same time, like you just can't be 14 and 20. The one thing I would say, though, is that, yes, we're 14 and 20, but the MLK black uniforms that got blessed by the Pope were 4-0 in those. So maybe we just maybe that's really what we need is we need to just be wearing those uniforms every game and uh, maybe we'll turn into the 86 Celtics. Yeah, uh, the, the Hawks have a lot of talent on that roster and I was super high on them. I picked them to be the four seed again. The East is kind of wide open, though, and like they could turn it around after the All-Star break. But I thought like Trey Young was like really going to take that like next next step. And like I thought the team was going to be really good, but like. You know, he's still averaging 27 points a game and he didn't make the all-star team, which is kind of crazy to think about. I think that's like less like less about him and more about the team, though. Like, I just thought they would like really mesh. I have a question for you guys on a hypothetical trade. If you're the Wizards, do you accept John Collins? This is a big trade, but John Collins, Tony Snell. Let's say Cam Reddish no. for Brad Beal. No, no, I, I don't think. The Wizards should trade Brad Beal unless he tells them he wants a trade or he's not going to resign. Like I just, I there, there's, there's no other reason to trade him. I have just an inkling that that's been the Hawks' hope all along is that they've been lingering in the Wizards or for Brad Beal. They have a like. We'll see what the Hawks do, but they for sure have promising rookies, whether it's DeAndre Hunter or Cam Reddish like on deals that like they can move them with. Also they have like Bogdanovich is on a very uh, movable deal and they just, they have the pieces to acquire another player to compliment Trey Young. Also John Collins has been talked about a lot. Like you guys yeah. can move, you guys could move him to someone who will pay him. I think that what the Hawks need more than anything, and this is a compliment to Trey more, not a diss on Trey. They need a lead scorer to pair with Trey because he's such an unbelievable passer that it's almost like it's taking away what is arguably his best skill set. And that's his ability to facilitate like I, him and Luca both coming out of that draft 
granted we didn't get the right one, but they were both a plus passers, like incredible vision for both of them. And if you put like an elite scoring wing pair that with Trey, I think that that would almost bring more out of Trey than it would even out of that elite guard. So we'll see. I mean, this was my biggest nightmare with the Hawks was that it just, you would have injuries you would have no cohesion since we didn't really have an offseason, didn't really have a training camp. Uh, Bogdanovich got hurt. The one bright spot, you mentioned DeAndre Hunter. DeAndre Hunter has gotten much, much, much better this year. I thought that he was at best a seventh or eighth man, like long term in the NBA. And he's definitely he's he's definitely a guy who can play in the NBA. Some so, call him a poor man's Kawhi. I've heard that, that type, as well. That type of game. And Not, Try not to get too excited about that. Sometimes, it, speaking of of, uh, of poor man's Kawhi's, I, I think Patrick Williams is is heading in that direction of super success on the horizon. It's interesting with him because he, there have been some wow plays out of him, and it kind of reminded me of when the Hawks growing up took, so he's a six man at Florida State, and was clearly one of their best, best, best players. He jumped off the screen every time he got out there at Florida State, but he wasn't starting, which was kind of weird. And it kind of reminded me of Marvin Williams with North Carolina and that 2005 team. And then the Hawks drafted him number two overall, famously ahead of Chris Paul and Darren Williams, not our brightest moment. And I think that Patrick Williams has a different level of game where that he can play. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see how he develops with that Chicago core. Yeah. And he, and he's so young and we've talked about it on the show. Like he doesn't turn 20 until August. So he's 19 his entire rookie year. And the, the athleticism is clearly there. And at least Chicago media portrays him as one that like, he really wants to win and he really wants to be good. And he's like working extremely hard to like get better. And he doesn't post many photos on Instagram, but like he's talked about how Kawhi Leonard is his favorite player. And like, that's the type of player that he sees himself becoming. And like, he has like three photos and then he has one photo dump from when they like played the Clippers of him just playing against Kawhi. So like, I think he really does want this. And outside of that top three in this, this year's past draft, like there wasn't any one guy after that that were like, this is the guy that like is going to draft. So like, I think the bulls took a gamble without having to trade any picks and we'll see how it goes. But so far, so good. Yeah, if you're going to take a guy like that and there's a clear top three, you might as well take the high upside guy. Like the Bucks did that when they took Giannis at was they took him at 15. I know the Hawks. I was interning for the Hawks at the time. They wanted to trade up to uh, take. They actually wanted to trade up to take him the year prior. They ended up taking Dennis Schroeder and Lucas Nagari 16 and 17. Giannis went 15. Uh, they went one for two on the 16 and 17 picks. But like it makes sense at that point if it's say not quote a great draft to take the guy who has the superstar upside. Yeah. And the other thing that I liked about the pick was like, they didn't have to trade up to get it. And I've heard rumors and, you know, we don't always know how much truth there is, but like Detroit was like really trying to trade up to take Patrick Williams. So if the bulls didn't trade up to take him, like I'm fine with it, but he looks good so far. And I'm really excited to see the type of player he develops into. Banheimer, how are you doing on the Lamelo James Wiseman? I'm just really glad that we got Nico Mannion. <laughs> we needed a ginger on our team. That was the piece that was missing. I, I'm, I, I'm glad you got Nico. 
I was super I was super high on LaMelo coming in. I always thought he was going to be really good. He had game, but like I also think like James Wiseman is very talented and it'll be a wait and see. I mean, LaMelo looks great right off the bat, but also Edwards is so athletic, like beyond athletic. He's just got to work on his game and he's on a terrible team and that team I think is like I don't know. They're they're one Carl Anthony Towns trade demand away from totally imploding. Yeah. It, it they is have kind of they a, have talent on that team though they have talent. It's funny because that class this class got ripped to shreds for a while. It was actually longer than a year just because the draft got moved back. I felt bad for those top guys because they were just getting eviscerated. But it hasn't been that bad of a class. Like no. Anthony Edwards' clear upside. By the way, it, when you hear him hear an interview with him immediately the most likable player in the NBA, just hilarious in every interview. Then you have LaMelo, who is such a breath, breath of fresh air, especially in Charlotte. Like Michael Jordan, finally, after all these years, finally got a stud to come there. And uh, then James Wiseman. Like, I mean, James Wiseman could 1,000% have the best career of those three, especially in the organization that he's in, the types of spot that he's in as a, as a role player. But it – you could tell that the Warriors – Sam, you can speak more to this than me, but, like, from the outset, like, you can tell that the Warriors are almost, like, empowering him to – like, Steph will feed him at times, especially, like, on uh, transition breaks and things of that nature. Like, that's that's a great spot for him to be in. Like, he could very well have the best career of those three guys. It's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. I can speak for Warriors Twitter here and kind of talk through the thought process on Wiseman versus Ball because there's been a debate the last couple of days since Ball's just been absolutely on a tear. He's looking like a, a surefire lock for Rookie of the Year. He's putting up yeah. legitimate NBA star numbers these days, like 30 points, six boards, six assists, like doing it all on the floor. So Warriors fans are kind of wondering, like, okay, like why didn't we take him over Wiseman? And the thing with Wiseman too is they tried to start him and ultimately wound up benching him for the purpose of winning games now. And there's an internal debate also about that, about whether or not we want to develop him now and hopes for a title chase next year, or do we want to try to win now because there's clearly a path to playoffs. My take is I'm happy that we got him. I think LaMelo Ball, while he's playing phenomenal and he's probably going to be very good, is he going to have, would he have had that same impact on the Warriors? Probably not. He right. wouldn't be getting the touches that he got in Charlotte. He'd probably he'd be starting guard, but the dichotomy between him and Steph wouldn't be great. They'd be giving up 125 points a game. So I'm happy with Wiseman. I think with big men, it traditionally takes a little while for them to find their niche. Like you could look at Towns or Anthony Davis or some of these guys that have come a long way since they started out. There's there's a lot of time that it takes. And and uh, Lamella Ball, you know, people are saying Tyreek Evans 2.0. You heard it here first, so I don't. I don't. That take. But I'm, ta- I'm telling I, myself. I, I will. I will. I will say though, Anthony Davis and Cat, like right off the bat, there wasn't like any sort of hesitation. Like at least after their first year, that people were just like, okay, like they're going to be good. They're not looking like a bust. And I think so far from what we've seen of Wiseman, he looks pretty good, and the future is yeah. bright. It just might take a while till he's like putting up like good producing numbers yeah maybe his his per 36 numbers are actually really good he just doesn't get as much tick on the warriors because we are trying to win now so we're giving minutes to 
Looney and we're playing Draymond at the five. So he'll get his due. I'm not worried about him, but he's shooting like 40% on threes, which was unexpected. And he's doing everything else that we'd really want him to do. I just wish he could catch the ball. He also just looks huge out there. Like he has really long legs and he's just like kind of like wide bodied and he looks like an NBA player. All right. So we've spent some time talking about the rookies. Daniel, one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on is to talk about investing in players' futures through the form of physical purchases of pieces of paper and other non-fungible highlights. Of the rookies right now, and you can take this however you want, who would you, whose rookie card do you want? Okay. And then also talk about the market in general. Two-part question. Uh, Am I specifically talking basketball or can I talk any sport? Let's talk basketball and then broaden the scope. Okay. So I think that I think Tyrese Halliburton actually has a lot of upside as uh, we're, and we're talking sports cards, extension being collectibles, NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens like NBA Top Shot. Uh, I think Tyrese Halliburton has a lot of upside from the collectible space beyond if you're trying to hold a, a sports card for say 20 years it depends if you're trying to hold it for a few months if you're trying to hold it for a few months by all means go lamella go lamella 10 times out of 10 and keep flipping lamellos because uh they seem to keep going up especially in the short term here but if i was going to pick one player from this class i think that i would go Halliburton. it's not necessarily just for his performance on the court i think that he's also just so well spoken and has real opinions on things and has like a perspective on society and culture. And that's the type of person who historically we've seen do well with sports cards. And it's not even necessarily just like a Phil Jackson, 1972 rookie card does really well because of what he did as a coach. But what we've seen in sports cards, that has been really interesting with this latest latest iteration and frankly the latest like spike with the cards has been people that have had an influence beyond necessarily their specific sports. So that could be like Muhammad Ali boxing cards have always been really hot, but they, I think once sold for $150,000 this past week, uh, a cash is clay PSA nine out of 10, from 19, like the 1960s, sold for 150 grand. Because of his influence beyond just his sport, Colin Kaepernick cards have really been growing. Uh, it's not just been them. It's I could see the same thing for like other NBA players that have been really a huge, have made an impact on social justice, on whether that be like a Jalen Brown, a Malcolm Brogdon, some of these guys that you you can really see have a voice. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Alcindor, like his 1970s rookie cards have been skyrocketing for the same reason. I think that it's exciting that people are looking at the player beyond just their their box score, uh, which is ultimately what was famous for what the value of sports cards initially, to seeing what their their overall impact is with their sport, how culturally relevant they are. I think that they're, that's been a really interesting place. And I actually think that if you go away from basketball, there are a ton of opportunities if you're looking to invest in sports cards in the future, but may need like a little primer on what exactly that means. Yeah. Why don't you uh, provide that for us? Can you talk a little bit about just like what's happened with sports cards over, let's say the last year, really? Because I mean, I, I feel like a year ago, you were first starting to hear about these these breakers and all that kind of stuff. And now I feel like I see that 
24 seven on Instagram and Twitter and all that. Yeah. So take a step back and look at when we were growing up with sports cards. I personally used to, I was obsessed, would go to local card shows and be negotiating with like 45 year olds for a Barry Bonds rookie card. I would get absolutely destroyed on the negotiation, but it was actually a really fun experience to go through that. I was obviously loading up being Atlanta guy was loading up on Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones, Greg Maddox, rookie cards. And so from that perspective, I think that's been fun to go back in the hobby, but what happened in the nineties was that was very interesting was kids saw their parents and specifically like with Mickey Mantle rookie cards from the fifties earlier than that, uh, hall of fame cards from like a, a, the famous one being a Honus Wagner that were selling for exorbitant amount, exorbitant amounts of money and basically like sending their kids to college. And so in the early, late eighties, early nineties, people thought that upper deck put Ken Griffey jr. And Ken Griffey jr. Was a rookie at the time famous because of his father, but also was the number one overall pick. Upper Deck put him number one in their set. And everyone thought that that Ken Griffey Jr. card was basically as rare as a Mickey Mantle rookie card. Little did people, and people were like collecting these things where they would show off that they had 100 Ken Griffey Jr. 89 Upper Deck rookie cards. And if you look it up, it's a pretty famous card. Little did people know Upper Deck wasn't necessarily being so, they, they weren't necessarily publicizing in the, they weren't necessarily marketing uh, the proper way, which that the number of cards that were in population. So let's say that a sports collector thought that maybe 5,000 were in, in population. There were upwards of 50,000, 100,000 of that same Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card in population. So everyone looked around all of a sudden in the mid 90s, late 90s, and they're like, oh, shit. Everyone has this exact same card. All of a sudden they looked around, and they noticed that every other card was the exact same way. And the bubble burst on sports cards and completely fell off the map. Upper Deck actually ended up losing their baseball license because of it and their basketball license, I believe, as well, uh, because of that that controversy. And it, it was basically a trickle down effect where a ton of brands outside of Tops uh, all lost their licenses. So there have been two major innovations that happened in the, the past few years that have really like revitalize the sports card uh, market. The first being that companies have really valued scarcity. So these things are scarce assets. They're not printing 100,000 of them anymore like they were before. They're not going to make that mistake again. But there's also this company called PSA. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of PSA, but PSA is a grading company. And they're looking at these cards at a microscopic level, like, like they're pieces of fine art. And so they're grading these cards one to 10 and publish, publishing the population numbers for each of those cards. So you can Google and you can search a 1986 Michael Jordan Fleer rookie card, and you can see that there have been 32,000 of them submitted to PSA, but only 300 of them have been graded at 10. So that PSA 10 Michael Jordan rookie card in the pandemic alone has grown from being like a $50,000 card to selling upwards of $730,000 and sold twice at that number in the pandemic. So we've seen like huge, huge growths 
a PSA nine Michael Jordan rookie card that there've been like 2,500 of in populations. So that's like eight to 9% of the overall pop. That card is selling for, it was selling three months ago, four, three, four months ago for 25 grand. It's probably selling for about $60,000 right now. So what we're seeing is we're seeing really high growth, growth rates for these high end cards. And that's kind of trickled down to uh, the more common cards. I actually, looking at like the way the market was was moving i was trying to zig when everyone else was zagging and i ended up getting back into sports card collecting by looking at goats in their respective sports but not necessarily in basketball baseball football and i actually ended up going toward tennis cards which super random but there was a 2003 set of tennis cards called 2003 net pro and that set included the rookie cards of Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, and Serena Williams. So arguably the three greatest players in the history of the sport, their rookie cards were all in the same set and they had really low population numbers. And so started investing in those and have done been done really well with those. I'm actually holding on to some right now. So I've sold a few of them, I've been holding on to some other ones. I've actually gotten a few buddies into it as well. We're all like have been locked into watching the Australian Open and looking for the French Open to see like, when do we sell the Nadal card? When do we sell the Federer card? But it's a fun way to zig when others are zagging and kind of use your sports knowledge. And it's been exciting to see that people are considering these cards assets. I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that guys that grew up in the 70s and 80s who were huge basketball fans they now are starting to, to make a little money and they're now putting that back toward the things that they had a nostalgia in uh, growing up. So that's why a Michael Jordan rookie card is going for 700 grand. A Charles Barkley PSA 10 is going for 25 grand for that same 1986 Fleer. It's, it's exciting time for the hobby, but I also like I'm hoping that it doesn't like go up too quickly where there's another bubble that bursts like what happened in the 90s. How do you describe that on hinge dates? <laughs> it's funny you say that because uh I, one of my buddies today sent me the me you know the the meme of the the guy in the club talking i was literally him. thinking about that as you were going on not not anything bad about what you were saying <laughs> i was just like this is just the text that goes on that meme exactly so yeah he uh he 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 sent me that today he said between nfts sports cards golf betting this is you on a Saturday night. And I told him, <laughs> I told him, you know, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, he and um, I are definitely thinking on the same lines there. <laughs> yeah. So recently, one of my favorite internet personalities, Vegas Dave, made some pretty big news. So for those who don't know who Vegas Dave is, he was a professional sports gambler. Well, I don't know if I would call him a professional. He was just like a degenerate. And he put 85 grand on like 35 to one odds that the Royals would win the World Series when they were last and they were last in their division. And he wrote it out till the very end and he ended up winning and he made millions on it. I think he made like three, three million something. And he uh, basically got banned from the casinos. So now he just does professional handicapping. For those that don't know, you basically people pay you for your picks and he's just like all over instagram and twitter and he's just like kind of obnoxious but he and you could explain more of it but essentially 
if I'm not mistaken, he bought up all the Mike Trout cards and basically cornered the market. And then he sold a rookie Mike Trout card for like four million, which is the most a baseball card has ever gone for. Yeah. So what Vegas Dave did is he what he did is he he bought like the highest of high end, which is super smart. In all seriousness, he bought the highest of high end of at the time, the most and still is probably the most exciting and most promising major league baseball player, the best player that we've seen in a really long time. He bought the super, super high end, the like the ones that are out of 10 in terms of overall population of that Mike Trout card. And he ultimately sold, I believe it was like a PSA nine for one point two million dollars. Since then, there have been about. I think 20 sales that have surpassed his card. And that includes, I mean, literally two days ago, a Luka Don, the best Luka Doncic card sold for, I believe, $4.6 million. Uh, there have been some really, really high price tag cards that have resold, re- that have been sold recently. A Mickey Mantle rookie card from 1952 sold for $5.2 million. And that's the most expensive card ever bought. And so since then, like he's almost saying that sports cards like are on their downfall right now for him. It may be a little regretting that he didn't owe it, uh, that he didn't hold for longer with his Mike Trout card. But regardless, like I think that something like that is great from a few years ago because it helped re reimagine for people like that sports cards could be a possible way to have like, you know, passive income at a maximum or at a minimum, at least have a fun hobby that they can, uh, that they cannot pay an exorbitant amount of money for. Yeah. But he kind of set the precedent. Like when you, at the time he had made his deal, that was the big, that was the most a sports card had ever yes. gone. And like, now you see since then, all these are going longer. So he kind of is the one that like, kind of like broke the dam. I, th- I think Vegas Dave deserves uh, his place in history for that card. He absolutely like, uh, help restart the the movement with sports cards, and he was he was early in seeing what others did. That guys who grew up from that time period now have a little bit of cash available, and they want to spend it on things that they grew up enjoying. For Vegas Dave, let's say he's forty, that was likely sports cards, and so uh, you saw others following the same suit. Now you have Michael Jordan cards going for seven hundred thirty grand. Yeah, no. Vegas Dave also paid a bunch of money for Derek Carr cards, which have not appreciated in value, mm-hmm. much to my chagrin. Not that I bought any. I just wish Derek Carr would play a little better. But yeah, no, it definitely is an interesting trend that we see going on right now. And I, I feel like it also just sort of mirrors the overall stock market, especially during the pandemic, where you just have all these people sitting around, not really doing anything. They have all this loose cash in a lot of cases, and they're just looking to spend it on anything. And some people are putting that into GameStop, other people are putting it into trading cards. Is that also, you think, a part of the reason why it's been going up the way it has been recently? I think I think that's spot on. I think that people were getting a lot of cash pretty quickly and thinking about speculative collectible markets in general. So it, I don't even necessarily think that it's just sports cards. It could also be something like watches, uh, collectible watches collectible cars like there's so many different hobbies that people that you can dive very deep into where all of a sudden something with a slight tweak 
or a slight difference to, for instance, with sports cards, the first edition LeBron James rookie card sells for about 5x what the traditional Topps rookie card sells for. Uh, for a non-collector, you could never tell the difference. All you see is LeBron wearing this oversized white suit that Drake impersonated in a music video. But for a hardcore sports card collector, they look at the top left corner and see first edition. And that's something that's appealing to them. And that's ha- that's having like a 5X premium right now. It's been really interesting. But P- it's also, they're also it's kind of at a crossroads right now with sports cards because PSA, the company who grades these cards, they've been getting so many cards sent in that the belief t- as of today is that they're 9 million cards behind. They have 9 million cards still to grade. And so if you were to pay just like the regular cost, say like 50 bucks to ship a card, you're looking at about a year return to get your card graded right now. So something like that, frankly, is just not great for the market. The, the hope is that they actually just got bought by Steve Cohen, uh, sure. the owner of the Mets. And the hope is that they can find a way to use AI uh, or some sort of forward thinking technology to expedite the grading processes for some of these cards. But I mean, I've got some I've got some Rafa Nadal rookies that are at PSA right now. Uh, a LeBron James Sports Illustrated for kids from like cut out from the magazine rookie card at PSA right now. I'm hoping to hear back soon, but like it's it's one of those things where it kind of it kind of is what it is. I mean, there's if there's nine million cards there, you look around, you're like, okay, it's going to take a minute. Yeah. And if the market tanks on a card that you have when it's in PSA, you're kind of just SOL at that point, I would think. Exactly. Or the opposite when like a card is booming. Uh, Yeah. Tennis cards were really hot a few weeks ago. They've kind of tapered off a little bit. But like I would have loved to sell the Nadal cards a few weeks ago, but we'll have to wait for him to win his French Open. Sports memorabilia has has always been a huge part of my life. Me and my dad have been collecting forever and we have a ton of stuff. And my grandpa was like the king and, and he had so much. And I, I kept this in my room and I'm going to share it with you. When he died, me and my cousins uh, did a snake draft to select it. But uh, I have a certificate of authenticity, but I have a Muhammad Ali and a Michael Jordan signed on the same print that says the greatest. And it's like one of like, 2000 so that's sweet yeah and it's signed on the same print and uh you know sam understands my investment strategy my investment strategy is to buy and never sell and and with something like that like and especially like i mean i think valuable change on different cards and, and things over time but like there you could buy a lot of these things as investments and i didn't buy that it was handed down to me but like a lot of these could be looked at as long-term investments just given when a person retires or when they die, unfortunately, but that's like kind of how it works. Yeah, I know. I 1000% and, and there's also a cool intrinsic value to you, uh, a sentimental value that, you know, it was your grandfather's and like, you can pass that down to your kid. Yeah. Uh, that's frankly, long-term knock on wood. We're all like good financially. We're like, you can hold on to something like that. It has more value to you than it would to anybody else. Like the, on the background behind me, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to the 2019 Masters with my dad when Tiger won. And so for my birthday, he got me a signed Tiger 2019 signed Masters flag and framed it with both of our tickets from the event, plus the program, plus the, the famous Sports Illustrated picture of him putting his arms up in the air 
that when he finally won something like that, that's like a a personal experience. Like those, those are the types of things with sports memorabilia that are so cool. Um, The love, the nostalgia, but then also the connection like to family and things like that. Another piece of advice that I want to give to people is I've collected hundreds of cards, baseball, basketball, football. And uh, my parents just recently moved and it's in storage. And since this market's been exploding, I need to go look and find out exactly what I have and start doing a little more research. I know, I know some of the stuff I have, but like when we were moving, like I found a tops Kobe rookie card that I've seen online going for between like seven and 12 K. And I think that people, especially those that collected cards should go back and try and look at what they have if their parents are still holding on to it because there could be a lot of value there. Even if it's like Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon too, like some of these cards are going for, for a lot. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. It, it, even if you don't find anything, it's kind of fun like going back through the treasure, treasure chest looking for these yeah. different things. I found a LeBron James 2003 rookie card going through my stuff. And I swear I found a, of all the cards – on that one, I think there was a six-year-old me's uh, booger on the card. So uh, <laughs> that one is not getting sent off to PSA. That one's uh, uh, staying for the personal collection. But, like, it's still fun regardless uh, going through looking for the cards. And who knows? Like, maybe you have a PSA 10 tops Kobe Bryant card that you, it, at a minimum, like, would look awesome in a PSA case. Yeah. And for me, at least, like, I, I would never sell – the stuff that I got from my grandpa, like I got some Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan. And I know the value will go up over time, but like some of the cards, like they're very cool, but like I just, the card doesn't mean as much to me as it does when it's signed. Yeah. And so that's interesting that you say that because right now with the market, they, people have been more focused on things that actually do not have autographs. And I'm with you. Like, I think things are way cooler when they're signed, like there's a personal element to it. And I could see that being the next iteration of sports cards, like say a few years from now, where it's kind of like a a blend of sports memorabilia and like the collectability that in the liquidity of the actual cards with like companies like PSA, I think that the next iteration would be something where these cards are signed. And so, yeah, if you could still get cards signed, like I think that they – there, there could be a premium for those in the future and Yu-Gi-Oh cards too. That was something I think that was more our generation. So say, let's wait a decade from now when our generation is like the previous generation that is now spending a lot of money on cards. And that could be uh, an opportunity in the same way that we're seeing with Pokemon now. So I want to take this in a bit of a different direction for a second. So I'm inherently a little bit of a cynic when it comes to stock market I think there's a lot every every time something goes up, I think it's a bubble. So with sports cards, I get the value because like you mentioned, Daniel and Ari, there's intrinsic value. Let's say you opened up your your grandpa's chest in the attic and there's a Mickey Mantle card in there. Like that's just so cool to see. And there's obviously monetary value to it, but also there's just such a personal connection that someone in your family had it or if there's an athlete that you really care about, you have a piece of signed memorabilia for them, you know that they at one point held it. Totally get that. The new wave as of what feels like probably what, like a month ago, are these things called non-fungible tokens that the NBA has taken up in the form of Top Shot. And that's basically a blockchain 
generated highlight of an athlete. So let's say a LeBron James dunk, where you know that there's only five thousands of these things out there, but it lives in the ether and the internet. You can't touch it, you can't hold it, you can look at it on your computer. What is the point behind that, and and why do we not feel like that's just kind of the pinnacle of arrogance when it comes to a bull market? So I. I have the same skepticism, by the way, with NBA Top Shot that you do. I think that NBA Top Shot kind of found like this perfect balance with the NFT space. And as uh, Sam mentioned, the NFT non-fungible token, it's basically think of it from the consumer perspective as a digital asset. We're talking about sports cards as a physical asset. It's it's a man or woman on a piece of cardboard uh, swinging a racket, swinging a baseball bat. There's really no utility to that. It's the same thing for uh, NBA Top Shot, except it's a 15-second clip of LeBron James shooting a three numbered out of 300. So the three things that you would need for something to be valuable would be an accessibility from like a market, some level of fandom with that market and then scarcity. And so it checks all three of the boxes for something to be collectible. And I think that it basically timed the market perfectly, NBA Top Shot. And I think that they've done like $250 million in sales in the past 30 days, like truly exorbitant numbers. But the one thing with NBA Top Shot that has me skeptical is that looking on Twitter and just kind of like reading the space, Everyone in the space is talking about how much money they're making off of flipping moments, moments being 15 second clips. No one is necessarily talking about actually collecting these uh, these moments. And that concerns me long term with NBA Top Shot because. So I was collecting Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal rookie cards. I know for a fact that there is a diehard tennis fan out there who is the end consumer who ultimately wants to collect as many Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal tennis cards as possible. That's not me, but I know that there is someone out there. The same thing for 1980s NBA basketball cards. I'm not convinced that there is someone who wants to collect every NBA Top Shot original moment. And that scares me that at least there's such a great percentage of the market that is all thinking about these things as quick flips to make money. And that that to me is concerning. And, and taking it a step further, those cards, NBA Top Shot cards or Top Shot moments are missing like that last key piece for something to really be collectible. And that is having a piece, an element of utility. And so right now you're just watching a 15 second video and there isn't necessarily a piece of utility that could allow you to be rewarded for continuing to come back and enjoying that piece. A a work of art, say a Picasso, a Warhol, that 1000% has utility because it can be showcased in a home, it could be showcased in a museum. You could even argue that sports cards in a way like a 1986 Jordan rookie is a piece of modern art in the same way where it has that type of utility. One thing that I've heard mentioned with Top Shot that could be interesting down the line 
is if they blended it into some sort of fantasy game. So there was some sort of fantasy game or say something like NBA 2K where you're only able to play with certain players if uh, you actually own that NBA top shot moment. And that would be um, that would be interesting for top shot to to take it a step further and actually have some element of a utility right now. It's just a beta. So like they really are at the beginning stages, but that would be interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, I see the value from the NBA's perspective because they're making money on the license. So I think that top shot takes like 85% of the purchase price of these assets, which granted is pretty low, but I mean, they're selling these things out within minutes of putting them online um, in the form of a drop. So I, I get the, perspective of top shot in the nba like you said though there's not really any utility to them at present i mean i can't unless i have a tv screen in my house dedicated to playing this 15 second clip of lebron dunking on somebody in perpetuity like there's nothing that i can do to show it off like do i pull up my phone at a bar and show it to somebody and brag about it like i get a just screenshot of it i mean if you if you were if they were offering top shots for past years and you were able to get the top shot of the Steph three against the Thunder on that Saturday night primetime ABC game, would you invest in that projector? Yes. I've actually I've actually yeah. reached out to an artist about commissioning a piece of that shot. I love that. <laughs> it's gonna happen. It's just a matter of time. The, the the thing though is that like with sports memorabilia, like it all seems to be going up and this is relatively new and like we might not see the value in it now, but like there was probably once a time where people were like in the fifties like or whenever they started making cards that were like, what's the value of this? It's a piece of paper with someone on it. But if you have like a card of Babe Ruth from the thirties right now, it's probably worth millions. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And these things go in waves. Like right now we're definitely in a collectible, a collectible spike. There's certainly going to be a dip at some point, whether that's two years from now, Four years from now, six years from now, ten years from now, who knows? If you if you were able to time that, like you're going to be very very wealthy in the same way that you would the stock market. But yeah, these things go in waves. Yeah, I gotta I gotta go to my parents' storage locker and get all my cards out, and you and me need to talk. Oh, I would I would love to. I in back to the NFT. I have hundreds, maybe even thousands. If <laughs> that 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 truly is like shoeboxes after shoeboxes. So personally, like I've. I've been going through and like going through the old cards and I don't know if this is weird or not. I'm actually going to ask you guys like your honest perspective on this. So what I've been doing, and I don't know if it comes off like a total weirdo, but I've been like organizing some of the cards that were either like funny names, like Jose Canseco, Lenny Dykstra and like actual studs, like a Kobe, a Michael, I don't have any Jordans, but like, uh, we get what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know. I've been like sleeving them up and just like giving to giving them to random friends when I go see them out at like at a bar. And because they look at this card and they're like, what the hell do I do with this at the bar? And so it's always like a very funny interaction. But it's, it's they always I think I'm like 100 percent in like them getting some element of nostalgia out of it. But then again, like I'd be curious y'all's opinion if I should stop doing that or not. You do you go out and you said you give it to them. You do you let it keep. Do you let them keep it or are, yeah. you, are you just like giving oh, yeah. out cards? Oh, uh, yeah. okay. I'm giving them out like Santa. So Ari and I have this thing where we'll just randomly text each other the most random athletes we can think of, like guys who played in the NFL for three years, 
never made an all pro team, got traded like two times. You've never heard of them, but I know them. We'll text those kind of guys to each other. That's a nice physical alternative where you just get somebody's card very randomly and then just give it to your friend at a bar. I kind of like that. That's weird. Yeah. It's the right type of weird. Yeah. I've gotten some weird looks out of it, but some like there's, you always got to do it in a crowd. That's the key. You do it in a crowd. So at least you're hoping for one guy to laugh in the crowd and then like you lean into that guy and then try to get the rest of the group to laugh. But uh, nonetheless, yeah, I've, I've, I'm still I'm still deciding whether it's worth it long term. I've got a couple of boxes down there still of, of more cards. Who would be? Wait, I'm just curious. Who would be your obscure raider? Marquise Tuiasosopo. Oh my God! <laughs> All right, so Sorry, we talked. What What was the question? Your obscure Chicago Bear. My my obscure Chicago Bear, Curtis Enos. And uh, I, I have two stories I was going to tell, one following this. But my reaction with Curtis Enos was he was a running back from Penn State. I think he was a first-round pick in, like, 2001 or 2002. I think he only played, like, three years. But my dad had some, like, banquet for work uh, at Maggiano's in Skokie at Old Orchard. And uh, when you entered, you had to write your name on a business card, and you could put it in a fishbowl. And it was a chance to win a signed Curtis Enos football. And I was like first or second grade. And there was like a couple hundred people there. And I put my name in and I won. And I got called up to stage. And I got out there to get the ball. And I tripped. And I I was in like first grade. But I just took it off. And like Curtis was – and like people laughed. But like even my mom said like I wasn't that upset about it. And like I still got the ball, and he like picked me up, and it was pretty cool. But like I doubt any of you would hear of him. But so the story I have in regards to sports memorabilia about buying low and selling high. So my dad used to help put together the high school round ball all American game, which was an all American game in Chicago from like 2002 until 2006 or seven, 2007, and it featured LeBron James, Greg Oden. Uh, Mike Conley, Kevin Love, James Harden. So I got a lot of signed stuff. But the year Greg Oden was coming out of college or coming out of high school, he was the number one ranked player in the nation. And many people were saying he was going to go on and be like the the next Bill Russell. Like he was going to change the game at the big man position. He was so dominant. And we got to meet him at the banquet and he signed a few things. Super nice guy. Really, it meant a lot to me at the time. So after the game, it's kind of a free-for-all. Everyone runs on the court. I got like a signed pair of OJ Mayo and Anthony Randolph shoes from the game. They both played in the NBA. I got some James Harden autographs. But, you know, everyone was mobbing Greg. And like this was like the player at the time. And I remember he looked at me and he winked at me and he threw me his warm-up, which I still have. One-of-a-kind, round-ball All-American warm-up, quadruple XL, signed by <laughs> Greg Oden. Yeah, signed by Greg Oden, round ball classic, All-American. And I, I was there by myself, and I'm like, holy shit. And I, like, held on to it, and I, like, went and found my dad. And, like, I showed my dad. And, like, keep in mind, this was a guy who people were, like, saying, like, he's going to be, like, one of the best basketball players ever. Uh, my dad, like, I think he literally said, this is our ticket out. Like, this is our ticket out. No, just like, just like it was going to be worth so much. And at the time, uh, I've ta- we actually have a memorabilia guy that we go to. He's like, at the time, coming out of high school, 
you probably could have sold that one of a kind for like tens of thousands of dollars, but now it's not really worth squat, but it has a lot of meaning to me and it's something I would never sell, but true at the time it was amazing. That's great. I remember I got a uh, rookie Robert gallery card. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the guard. And I, uh, I, I broke it open in the card store and the guy was like, man, that'll be worth something one day. And it isn't probably worth, the paper that it was printed on. He was the he was the best guard to come out of Iowa that class for sure. Yeah, he had a cool arm sleeve. So. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that, right. That's a classic Raiders lineman. I want to I want to just say that I was uh, off on my years on Curtis Enos. I just had to look it up. Round one pick five, which is higher than I thought, out of Penn State. 1998 draft and he only played three years 98 to 2000 on the bears and 2001 on cleveland so i must have been in like kindergarten when that happened and then daniel who's your random falcon oh my random falcon alan alan rossum remember Dude, the kick return not not random. i remember he had a 99 overall speed and he won the nfl's fastest man competition in like 2003 that's right, that's right. Oh, yeah alan rossum the, basically, the qualifications for us is you have like no career accomplishments whatsoever. <laughs> like if you if you look on Curtis Edis's highlights and awards, it's a consensus All American in college, and then nothing in the NFL. There's I run it no, back. Can I, can I there's no one? no awards. He had four career touchdowns, and I'm not knocking on him. I really liked him because he like picked me up and gave me a signed ball. But I mean, he's just very random, and I wouldn't expect anyone to know who he was. Yeah. The goal, uh, the goal is to get someone without a Wikipedia picture. Yeah, <laughs> we've gotten a couple of those. I like There's, the there are plenty of hawks. The hawks are easier than the Falcons because, like, they were bad back then. They run so, deep like, on those guys. Like Demar Johnson. Never heard of him. He was a six-nine shooting guard in 2002. Like that, he was supposed to change the game. <laughs> he was ahead of his time. He was ahead round, of his time. Round yeah. one, pick six. Yeah. Damn. Talk about a journey, man. Yeah, he, I think he got in a really bad car accident in Atlanta and never was the same after that. So glad we looked up, actually. Yeah. Sorry for bringing that one up. Way to ruin the mood. I know. But he, I, I had never heard of him, so that's that's good. Yeah. So one last thing with the collectible space, if you're looking, if you're looking for like a potential opportunity in the collectible space as of now. It's in the NFTs specifically. There's this game called So Rare. And not sure if you guys are huge soccer fans, but basically what it is is it's FIFA Ultimate Team, but it's continual. So instead of like, you know, FIFA 19 to FIFA 20, like you buy cards in FIFA 19, they're worth nothing in FIFA 20. It's continual game. And it's a continual fantasy game where you buy cards in the game and then you play with them in like a fantasy sports style soccer game throughout the course of the year. Obviously like an Mbappe card is going for a lot of money in this game. But I think that something like that, where there's an actual utility to it, like we were talking about Top Shot not having the utility. So rare is an example of one where you can play with, with uh, the players in the game. And if you win, do well in tournaments, if you get a certain amount of points with your fantasy team, they actually send you Ethereum. And they actually just, as of two days ago, two or three days ago, had like a $50 million series, series A investment that's all marketing-based. Mm-hmm. And so 
which is great for soccer because you want to market something where there are 4 billion soccer fans worldwide. So if you're looking to get into something in the NFT space now that may uh, survive the next six months and not just be a fad, look at SoRare, S-O-R-A-R-E, SoRare.com. FIFA Ultimate Team kind of was the first. Uh, 1,000%. Because kids were paying a lot of money back in the day for those packages of players. It's the highest grossing category on EA's that that EA, EA has five EA makes five billion dollars five billion dollars a year off of FIFA Ultimate Team, and so so rare is taking some of the elements of what made FIFA so attractive, but it's making it a continual game. And I think that like something like that could completely change uh, the future of NFTs and like and I be, an Mbappe super rare card to one out of ten that has like a ton of bonuses in the game. Sold for like eighty five thousand dollars this past weekend. I was just tracking it. Like the so like that one's definitely picking up, but I think that there's still a ton of value there. It's like the fourth most popular NFT right now, but say one twentieth the level of what NBA Top Shot is. If you're looking to get into one in sports, it's kind of a fun one. I like that. One one last thing on investing in sports. So this is this is coming straight from the right side of my brain right now, coming direct. What do you think about an idea where you can buy stock in a professional sports organization, a la Green Bay Packers, but where it's an actual market around teams themselves? So like if we're talking the NBA, like the the Hawks at the beginning of this year, hot pick, like you might be a little overvalued. Now the bubble burst. Now you wish you put your money into the Sixers. Like, I don't know. I think Obviously, it's called sports, gambling. I know I was going to say sports gambling is basically that, but I think having like an options basically on some of these teams would be interesting. Where like I take a thirty to one odds on the Sixers at the start of the year, midway through they're in like third place. Those odds go down to like I don't know fifteen to one. I sell the fifteen to one option. Yeah, I think a that would be called Props Bet. There's a company called Props Bet that does something very similar to that. Uh, basically almost exactly that the problem that with sports betting is that it's less if we're talking about like selling your bets say you have a a joe burrow 90 to 1 heisman ticket or something like that it's more difficult to to sell that sports bet than you would think just because there's so many different sports books out there the legality of something like that it's not quite as liquid of a market as you would at least expect Sports cards are a pretty liquid market, but then again, you still have to wait for PSA to grade your cards. You still have to like, I've had to go to USPS and sell these cards and like ship them and, you know, package them well. And it's not enjoyable, like not an enjoyable experience. That's the one place I think that NFTs could, could see a real future is owning, virtually owning a team and being able to sell it in a marketplace in an NFT allows for such a liquid uh, buying and selling experience. You could do that with blockchain on a sports bet if it was more 1, centralized. We should start that. that. That's we let, let's cut that because let's do that. That's our ticket actually, out. The, oh, that's our ticket that out. is Not that is a really game. good idea, but like oh, we just need developers. We need developers, developers, developers. Um, all right, Daniel, I want to leave you on one thing before we. Uh, close up. Let's hear it. One of my favorite stories about you was uh, a time in college 
where you thought your car got stolen and it turned out you had left it where you originally left it. And do you, do you want to tell, tell some of the listeners what happened? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's time. Uh, this, I've been told by my sister that this story is going to return at my wedding as well. So, you know, when you've like had a week, I'd had that week and I was just exhausted was going to a finance class, 8 a.m. on the way, stopped at Bloomington Bagel, a classic place. I think a place we've all free. I've definitely enjoyed a bagel with each of you there. And at Bloomington Bagel, I think I got like a text from somebody. And I guess usually I walk to class and I end up being like, oh, shit, I'm late. And I have to sprint to class and barely made it on time end up walking back the next day had an e-contest and had been studying for it. I've been thinking about it obsessively and I go to my car because I'm running late and I'm like, I need to park at the, the union and my car's not there. And I look around, I looked up every single floor and that Toyota forerunner is not there. And I'm like, are you serious? So I did what anybody would do. And I called the police. <laughs> so I thought that it was stolen. And I'm not kidding. I didn't see that car for two days because I was convinced that it was stolen. I mean, like I talked to my parents about it. Like they were in discussions with the police uh, my professor, who didn't believe me for why I was missed his exam, he made me connect him to the police officer who wrote like a formal letter saying that, yes, there's an investigation for my car being stolen. And so like a couple days go by and I'm like, my car hasn't come up. It's probably in Michigan by now. And all of a sudden I get a call from an ex roommate being like, Daniel. The guy that stole your car, he parked it at Bluey Bagel. Go, go, go. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. This whole time it was at Bluey Bagel. It had eight parking tickets on there. I've never been so happy to pay eight Bluey City parking tickets as I was in that situation. But, but yes, like my car was retrieved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was... Uh, that, that was a time to look myself in the mirror in college. <laughs> that, that was a real reflection time. Also, it seems like the Bloomington Police Department, the left hand didn't really know what the right hand was doing and that you'd filed the police report and that that same police department was <laughs> giving you a bunch of parking tickets. So it seems like they had a little bit of a breakdown as well. Yeah, and maybe they were in on it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe they were like, the longer we don't tell this kid <laughs> where his car is, the more money the city will make. Yeah, that's, I mean, I I, I probably paid were. for renovations to the to the union, to the area <laughs> around the union at least. <laughs> All right, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the Legends podcast. Uh, we definitely need to reconnect, and I need once I get my uh, baseball cards out of storage, and we're gonna go through some of them. Um, come come to Chicago soon. We'd love to see you, or we'll come to Atlanta. One thousand percent. We'll do. I'll definitely come to Chicago. But yeah, you guys come down to Atlanta. When things open back up, I'd love to take you to inside the NBA studio. We can make that happen. Have you yes. guys meet Shaq, 
that'll be your next uh, sports memorabilia experience. Hi, thank Down you so that. much, Daniel. Yeah, Daniel, right. you're the uh, you're the Jackie McMullen of this podcast. Wow, that that's an honor. We the highest praise I can hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, genuinely do appreciate that. It was great catching up. All right, take care, guys. Peace. Likewise. Thank you all for listening. Coming up next week on the Legends Podcast, we have rising star in the Republican Party, Charlie Kirk.